0: Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of Talking Strategy, Making History with Doraka Larimore Hall and Professor Emeritus Dick Flax. Hi, guys. <laughs> Glad to be back. Yeah. So today we have a little bit of a, a mix episode with two topics we want to uh, bring up and, and delve into related to socialism and its discontents, how big ideas in the left uh, can be... Uh, used and abused, you could say, um, when it comes to socialist, or when it comes to political strategy and, and everyday politics. And Dick's going to get us kicked off with our first question, checking in on the political situation in Washington, the Biden agenda, the, the role that the left is playing, and what kind of implications that has for this, this season where we're talking about big ideas, uh, ideology, and uh, you know, political practice so so Dick, why don't you get us started off what's on your mind?
1: To take off from what we were talking about in episode two, where we were comparing the presence of socialism as a political force in the other advanced industrial and capitalist countries and its absence in this country and trying to puzzle about that, one thing we didn't really say but we can foreground right now is the fact that that uh, history is expressed. Politically, in the fact that in all of the European countries and most of the countries of the world have a large and fairly long-standing labor-oriented, working-class-based party, social democratic parties in Scandinavia, labor party in uh, Great Britain, for example, social democratic party in Germany, is quite old, like 150 years old I think, almost uh, and we don't have a party with that name we had a socialist party we mentioned that last time back before World War One and in through World War One. Uh, but it's over 100 years since there's been a socialist party with a mass electoral appeal in this country but what we have is something we call the Democratic Party and it is a never been a party that not only is it not a socialist party, but it is a party that has never fully declared itself to be the party of the working people of this country. Uh, It has been a uh, much weirder and contradictory uh, confederation of interests uh, for, for most of this time. And yet, And various social scientists have pointed out for a very long time, especially since the beginning of the New Deal period, workers, white, black, brown, voted overwhelmingly Democrat. Well, that started to change. uh, And the divisions within the working class politically have been much heightened in recent decades. Uh, The Republicans have adopted strategies. And what has been the heart of that strategy, to make it really simple, is to play up the race card in one way or another uh, as a way of splitting uh, working class votes and attracting white workers to the Republican Party, not on the basis so much of uh, class interest at all. And, of course, nothing is more evident about that than Donald Trump. So anyway... That sets the stage, I think, Doraka, for a number of conversations we're going to have. But today, uh, there's a very hot question that continues to be roiling uh, Democratic Party strategists and pundits of all sorts and columnists and and activists. And that is, how does uh, the Democratic Party maintain and, and expand its very tenuous hold on Uh, on national government, uh, unless it can bring back uh, a significant portion of white working class voters, uh, undercut the uh, Republican appeal to um, racial-related kinds of messages, Uh, how can that be done? While at the same time uh, really mobilizing black and brown voters, voters of color, to turn out in the polls and really uh, uh, support the Democratic uh, agenda and Democratic candidates for the Senate as well as national candidates? How, How can both of those things be done at once? One answer is, in various forms, downplay race and play up Issues and messages that appeal to uh, white working-class voters. And then the question is, even if you adopt that view, what are those issues? The most progressive version of this argument is uh, maybe something that comes out of Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign, where he emphasized very much class issues that derive from notions like the 99% versus the 1%, the billionaire class. We have to reduce their power. We have to expand opportunities for working families and for working people. We have to create jobs, Uh, all of that. Nobody would disagree, by the way, with those agenda items, uh, but to make those the exclusive or dominant message uh, runs into trouble, and that's part of what I want to talk about today. Uh, Why is that purely class appeal Uh, something that needs severe criticism. But a more subtle version of this would be to um, frame issues so they appeal to white workers and working-class families uh, through program, and that is one way to read the Biden Build Back Better bill, which we're waiting for its passage. It contains a whole set of programs, and maybe we'll mention some of them as we go along, Uh, that that are designed to show ordinary working people that the Democratic Party and the government itself has answers for their very pressing and urgent needs for jobs and for various kinds of benefits and security.
0: I actually think that there's uh, an oversimplification in that story that we tell about Ra- the race and class in American politics and race and class uh a- a- as a reason that uh, america the United states hasn't had a strong socialist movement um, that I think is a little sloppy that I want to talk about first um, uh and and also it, and this is my sort of theme in a lot of these discussions is to back up and you know stop romanticizing the period of time in which uh white wor- working class people uh people who are working class and also are white uh, voted uh consistently for parties of the left and center left um we we talk about that as if it was a generations long uh, multiple generation centuries upon centuries tradition uh whereas in fact um it's you know w- workers who are also white or of the a uh, dominant ethnic group in, in a European context, have always gone back and forth between the left and the right, the far right, the religious right. Um, you know, Basically, the left has always been in competition for those votes. And those, those voters, those demographics, those communities have always uh, been up for grabs in some sense. You know, from, uh, from FDR on, from World War II on, in a lot of countries in Europe uh and i don't mean i shouldn't say on from from that period of time uh until the 1970s only could parties of the left and center left really reasonably rely uh or take for granted that they would get the lion's share of the vote from people who were both white and of the, the dominant e- ethnicity uh and uh, uh and working class and and workers so um so that's the first thing i would say is like We've always had this problem. Um, so it's always been a challenge for the left to understand that people with academic leftists nowadays call it a possessive investment in whiteness, um, that that's always existed uh, and always been a temptation for white working class voters. And then that other piece that I mentioned um, is that's sort of more specific is that the difficulty in uh, articulating a Purely class message, or a message that's like, "Hey, we're working class, and the most important identity that we have is that we are working class, and we are against the boss." Um, that that's always taken work to convince people of, <laughs> um, and uh, and often and and then people have very real objective reasons <laughs> and experiences in their life that also tell them otherwise, either because they're women and so they they actually the dominant identity that's determined whether they live or die or can enter the workplace or vote or whatever is their gender, um, who would also beg to differ that class is the, the most important identity. So you know, to me, that's also a very old argument that I, 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 I thought we'd sort of made progress on decades ago. So, I didn't answer your question specifically with any kind of like magic bullet for like how do you win elections in modern society. But I do think that we need to reframe this question or reframe this history that we tell ourselves that once upon a time there was this unified, unitary left around class issues and then it all blew apart.
1: Well, I don't disagree with that. In fact, uh, you know, I've actually thought about and written about a lot of that history myself. But The immediate electoral strategic kind of issue uh, the nostalgia is for the fact that the New Deal FDR the Democrats had huge majorities they were hegemonic and that included the movement of black voters into the Democratic Party they had been Republican correct by and large because of the Democratic Party was the party of racism and white supremacy and segregation in the South, the party of slavery. The Republicans were the anti-slavery party historically. So one of FDR's achievements, if you will, and uh, the New Deal's achievements electorally was to get the African-American uh, voting blocks in the, in the North to shift to the Democratic Party in a big way. Uh, people don't really know that history. They think that overwhelmingly uh, African-Americans and people of color are automatically Democrat, but there was a long struggle history,
0: you might say, before that came to pass. Well, Republicans certainly like to uh, remind everyone of that. Yeah. You said something earlier that was really astute, right, which was that you have to remember that the New Deal coalition that we romanticized was a coalition. It was big and it was majoritarian and and we we'd love to, I want to get it back for sure. Um, But that, but it was this, it was this this diverse coalition and we're, we, we, we've sort of made a fetish of one part of it that has left the coalition. Um, And we can, we should talk about how to get them back if we can get some of them back, if some of them are lost forever. And that should be an empirical science-driven conversation. But instead what we have is, like, there are certain groups of voters that in the general political discourse just, like, get held up as the most important because we're told they are. And all politics needs to, you know, align to them. So and so that gets to this question of the power of the left in the national agenda. Um, like, I'm sorry, but these people need to put on their adult pants and realize that, of course, things that are going to be chanted from the barricades in the streets in the movement to hold police accountable or demanded from that movement aren't going to play well in a suburban district in Texas. Sorry. Like yeah, the Democrat there's got to figure out how to message and be like, Hey, I'm part of this broader party. I don't agree with that part of it, but you know, we, we do need to hold police accountable in some way, whatever, like grow up. Uh, that's politics. It's hard to pull, keep coalitions together and it's hard to, to win everywhere. Um, and so uh, so I think, you know, how how do you think we're going to keep building uh, majorities in a place like Georgia without talking about race? And we need to build a, a majority in Georgia in order to have the national majority. So to me, it's just always been a kind of dumbed down conversation um, uh, in which like one group of voters gets pitted against another group of voters, even though both are just on the basis of raw arithmetic necessary to get to a majority. So, and, and I think there's been books written now and there's, you know, folks voices out there. Um, uh, Brown is the new, what is it? Brown is the new white. Uh, I would just get that wrong. The title of that book. But anyway, um, we're, you know, we're, we folks have been commentators and researchers and social scientists and, and, and others have been arguing that like the, the path to national hegemony in the United States, like, is about boosting turnout and loyalty in communities of color. Uh, you know that the math is there, but but where we get somehow really really caught up in using the the fears or insecurities of certain types of white voters as the barometer for where the party should be, and I think that's silly.
1: Yes, so the, the ideal alternative, to my mind, would be finding issues that are unifying and that actually can be seen by workers across the board as uh, ones that they can own and that they should vote for. And at the same time, another angle, and maybe a more immediate strategy that isn't really central to our conversation but is certainly important for the democrats to really consider is we've got to have a very strong uh uh, feeling across the board how dangerous the republican party trump in particular but the republicans in general uh, are to all people's interests Uh, and that you know in an immediate electoral strategy includes that we've got to get people to vote against uh, what a Republican government would would be, and and um, I'm, I'm amazed by how little conversation there is on that point.
0: But rather than focus on that, let's focus on the first point. How, but how is that different than the sort of like anti-woke, let's get back to class politics? Oh, because it just
1: it, it's what you would, as you know from your own political operation. I mean, you want to get people out to the polls and say, look, it's really important to vote now, no matter what your Uh, questions might be and you have legitimate grievances against uh, the way politics works in general but the big threat you know people vote against threats is the argument here Uh, i don't want to dwell on that because i think that's you know that has to be part of any appeal i will say this unless the democrats can actually show that they can deliver what people something of what people need and I do think this uh, a bill that, that we're awaiting passage contains a lot of that. Absolutely. Um, and that if they can deliver that, everyone's expecting that to change, but it's not automatically simply going to change because of that passage. I mean, people have to know that what's in the bill, which they do not know, um, and they have to see it as... Um, Actually being delivered, not just promised, which is a problem for a lot of social programs, as they they turn out to be far more complicated to receive the benefits than than are promised. So those are all issues which we which we talked a little bit about, I think, in season one when we did various kinds of conversations. And by the way, one thing we talked about in season one uh, with several of our guests was the need for Uh, the Democrats to be organizing in the very red state areas that now seem hostile. That one reason for the decline of working class support, white working class support, is simply the decline of unions in in places like Wisconsin uh, or Michigan or whatever, and the need to build back uh, some frameworks of of collective collective space where people can... uh, hear the progressive arguments and, he, and feel some sense of affinity. You know, and maybe now that is sudden, you know we're, we're, we're talking to each other right now on a day when a number of amazing little, sort of little but but very significant labor struggles have, you know, Starbucks workers voting for unions in Buffalo, Columbia, Columbia student workers uh, be forming a union against the bitter opposition of the administration. Those happen today. So, um, maybe there's hope there in terms of some of this uh, social space coming back for uh, people to hear uh, to hear the, the positive class arguments. Here's how I would, I'll throw this out as a path, and it's a socialist kind of argument uh, about race in this matter the black-white wealth disparity is monumental. And the more that people, in my experience, hear about the reality of it and the reasons for it, the more people realize this is a fundamental fact. And so policies that uh, overcome, to some extent, that gap, I mean, there are examples being, you know, give you know, every child, by virtue of, their humanness should have some kind of uh, guaranteed uh, um, stake, you know, financial stake. The Melvin Oliver, our former colleague here, uh, advocate, you know, he was one of the first to really expose the black-white wealth disparity. And he said, you know, we should have like a a share, every child should have a share, uh, an economic share in the bank. Uh, for their future just to get, be, be able to build up assets to overcome these wealth disparities so well, that that wouldn't be targeted to blacks it, black kids it would be targeted to it would be targeted to children but uh it would create um you know some basis of equality or a guaranteed uh federally guaranteed jobs full employment program really being delivered uh it's the responsibility of the government to to, to do something about the unemployment disparities that are racially there. In other words, you can develop class-based programs that benefit across the board but are going to be far more important for workers of color or families of color uh, because of the existing horrifying um, disparities that are built in and that were based on government policies. Uh, They're like, we're talking about redressing that which was instituted by institutional policy. We're not talking about individuals' racism. And this is one of the things that I think maybe I'll throw this out too, and then I'll shut up and let you reflect on all this. To talk a lot about um, matters of microaggression or of individual attitudes about race, is in a way, isn't it a kind of diversion from dealing directly with structural racism and the full reality of it? Um, not that the uh, interpersonal racism, you might say, uh, and the, and white supremacy as an ideology, those that, that have to be fought. But as policy issues, it seems to me I would give priority to what the kind of stuff I was just referring
0: to. So uh, it's a very, provocative question. Um, I, I think that yes, it to add your to your second question, that it does feel like there's an, an emphasis on not just micro interaction racism, but you know, sort of in, so interpersonal racism, but also the psychology and psychological damage uh, of racism and these sorts of things does seem to have been emphasized to the detriment of more systematic critiques, more power-based critiques, more social critiques. I, I think that's probably true, but, but I do think that there's a, a hell of a lot of insights that's come out of um, that focus on the more interpersonal that also had been missing frankly, from right. the movement and from the left's right. thinking about racism for a long time. So right. it's like, to me, a corrective. I guess I'm getting old and I'm like, yeah, maybe some things go too far, but that's part of the dynamic. But It's not about going too far. It's what
1: setting within which certain issues are brought to the fore and and other issues are not. And I guess I'm feeling in a specifically electoral place, it is not wrong to think we look at issues that can be unifying across the electorate if we can find them.
0: Okay, but okay, so that's what I want to take a take issue with actually. so but because I think part of the focus on interpersonal dynamics and racism uh, and sexism for that matter, um, and other forms of oppression, part of the, it, the insight that it's given us is that it's it started to force the question of like who are the racists in society that perpetuate racism or what are the actions that perpetuate it? Because we had started to talk about things, racism in such a, a systemic way and in such an abstract way that it was like being a racist became has become this like, oh, well, only you know weird, old, crusty southerners living, you know, off the land are actual racists. I can't possibly be a racist. You know, I I grew up with The Cosby Show and I'm a bank manager, you know? And then it was like, no, this is how the the bank manager's racism manifests. This, you know, and so enforcing questions, and enforcing debates about things like privilege, I think has been incredibly useful for, for thinking about how the struggle, I mean, you know, it's it's how we were trained to think, as sociologists, that there's always an inter- interaction between the macro and the micro, and they're both very important. So I, I say all of that to say that, that also from that, we get a very important challenge to this idea of building political coalitions through universalist economic-based appeals, where the secret agenda, the hidden agenda is to help Uh, you know, people that are, that are facing racial oppression uh, in addition to class oppression or in addition to economic uh, inequality, you know, and, and I, and I say that because I I remember being in college and there were these raging debates and very, very good debates, very exciting debates with uh, William Julius Wilson, you know, really explicitly arguing like, hey, it's time to stop talking about uh, basing things on race uh, and affirmative action and these sorts of things like they were totally well-intentioned, but here's all these social democratic class-based things we can do. And the hidden agenda is that, oh, it's also really especially going to help black and brown uh, communities. And again, I think that came from a good place. He was totally mistakenly maligned as some kind of racial conservative, which he's not at all. Um, And I think that was cool and interesting and, and, and made some good points. But here's the thing. We see white voters voting against universalist programs that are in their interest and a big part of their motivation is that it's going to be anything that's universal is like really going to help the blacks or the immigrants or whomever and so and 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 we see a, a, a political identity uh that brews I think, you know, maybe arguably more of a middle class than a working class or poor thing. But it's a white thing in America to be like, I'm white. Part of being white is that I'm against handouts and I'm against the state and I'm against all these things. So um, I, I just I feel like it's naive to think that you can not confront and come up against racism, whiteness, identity politics, all these sticky postmodern woke kinds of things, even if you're just out trying to build a majority for universal health care. Um, anyway, that is so long story short is I I just think the, the racism piece is unavoidable in the United States, probably worldwide.
1: I've had these experiences as a teacher where uh, um, I, I had one case that really stuck with me, where I was teaching class and I invited a um, guy to class who was a friend of mine who was an African-American staff member at UCSB. And the class was over. I went back to my office and this kid comes out and he says, how could this guy hate me so much? I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, he's saying that... white people have done all these harms. I said, I don't even hear, I didn't hear that much. Why, why did you hear that? And suddenly he bursts into tears. This is remarkable. He said, I'm a racist. He said, in high school, I felt bullied by black, black gangs. I was in a predominantly uh, non-white high school. Okay. And I've never gotten over those feelings. And I can't stand the fact that I have these feelings. And he was crying. Uh, and, and to me, this was like a little revelation. It's an anecdote, but it seemed to me to stand for a lot of possible things. Any discussion of race immediately triggered him to feel that he was being attacked. Um, not because of the gang attacks, but because he really did have those feelings and he really was anxious about those feelings. Anyway, um, it's so startling that there's these campaigns on the far right to, away with the teaching
0: about race and they're, you know, they're amazing, but, but they have to be answered. Is it startling? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they have to be answered, but it's like, so obvious and strategic and smart on their, on their part for precisely the reasons that I'm saying that the, that racism is this, you know, structural, cultural juggernaut in this country. And so undoing it and starting to unravel it by teaching, you know more accurate history in school um you know that's a big part of why the millennial and gen z folks are um you know actually not from the science not completely uh different than their their forebears um, but are more uh progressive on identity questions and so forth you know that it's part of it is like they actually grew up hearing something better closer to uh, accurate history than than what previous generations did. And, and the right knows that and they're zeroing in on that. I wanted to make one other point uh,
1: before we maybe wind up this particular segment, which is to me a sign of hope. And that is the degree to which the leadership of progressive political organizations and institutions is being taken over by non-white, non-male leadership. Um, and therefore, if if Planned Parenthood is led by an African-American woman, if the AFL-CIO is led by a woman, if the Democratic Party is led by an African-American male, if all of these institutions that are speaking to the general uh, issues in American society, not simply racial issues, are led by people of color, Uh, You know, often uh, or women. Uh, This is this to me is transformative. It's not simply because of representation. There's a way in which it makes a a difference. I can't even explain it fully. The fact that the AFL-CIO is led by a woman seems to me is really an important symbolic thing, and it would be more than symbolic. The more uh, she is seen as the voice of labor. Ah, uh, because the laboring force, the working class, is not white men. The working class itself is all genders and all colors and all ethnicities, and uh, the labor leadership has never been. But it isn't just labor; it's across the board. And uh, I think that's. I don't. I don't know. I can't even put my finger on it to spell this out exactly. But to, to me. I guess the the example I'll give goes way back to the March on Washington 1963. That march was a march for freedom and jobs. And the reason the jobs element was in there was in part because A. Philip Randolph, who was one of the architects, was the only African-American labor leader in America. Uh, He had been uh, advocating this kind of action for decades. Black marches on Washington to demand equality. So he made a a little speech, of course, at the March on Washington, in which he enunciated not only a civil rights program, but a uh, economic program as integral to the struggle for freedom. So I thought, you know, when I, I was listening to that recently and thought, okay, this is one way to deal with the kind of question we're talking about stop making this division. It doesn't make any sense. Just because uh, a lot of Americans make that division and don't want to hear the civil rights side or the racial, the racial side, Randolph's speech is highly eloquent and speaks to what people want to hear.
2: Fellow Americans, we are gathered here in the largest demonstration in the history of this nation. Let the nation and the world know the meaning of our numbers. We are not a pressure group. We are not an organization or a group of organizations. We are not a mob. We are the advance guard of a massive moral revolution for jobs and freedom. This revolution reverberates throughout the land, touching every city, every town, every village where black men are segregated, oppressed, and exploited. But this civil rights revolution is not confined to the Negro, nor is it confined to civil rights, for our white allies know that they cannot be free, while we are not. And we know that we have no future in a society in which six million black and white people are unemployed and millions more living poverty. Nor is the goal of our civil rights revolution merely the passage of civil rights legislation. Yes, we want all public accommodations open to all citizens, but those accommodations will mean little to those who cannot afford to use them. Yes, we want a Fair Employment Practice Act, but what good will it do if profit-geared automation destroys the jobs of millions of workers, black and white. We want integrated public schools, but that means we also want federal aid to education, all forms of education. We want a free democratic society dedicated to the political, economic, and social advancement of man along moral lines. Now. We know that real freedom will require many changes in the nation's political and social philosophies and institutions. For one thing, we must destroy the notion that Mrs. Murphy's property rights include the right to humiliate me because of the color of my skin, the The sanctity of private property takes second place to the sanctity of the human personality. It falls to the Negro to reassert this proper priority of values because our ancestors were transformed from human personalities into private property. It falls to us to demand new forms of social planning, to create full employment, and to put automation at the service of human needs, not at the service of profits. We, for we are the worst victims of unemployment, Negroes are in the forefront of today's movement for social and racial justice because we know they cannot expect the realization of their aspirations, our aspirations, through the same old anti-democratic social institutions and philosophies that have all along frustrated our aspirations. And so we have taken our struggle into the streets. As the labor movement took its struggle into the streets, as Jesus Christ led the multitude through the streets of Judea, the plain and simple fact is that until we went into the streets, the federal government was indifferent to our demands. It was not until the streets and jails of Birmingham were filled that Congress began to think about civil rights legislation. It was not until thousands demonstrated in the South that lunch counters and other public accommodations were integrated. It was not until the Freedom Riders were brutalized in Alabama that the 1946 Supreme Court decision banning discrimination in interstate travel was enforced. And it was not until construction sites were picketed in the North that Negro workers were hired. Those who deplore our militants who exhort patience in the name of a false peace are in fact supporting segregation and exploitation. They would have social peace at the expense of social and racial justice. They they, uh, are more concerned with easing racial tension than enforcing uh, racial democracy. The months and years ahead will bring new evidence of masses in motion for freedom. The March on Washington is not the climax of our struggle, but a new beginning, not only for the Negro, but for all Americans who thirst for freedom and a better life. Look for the enemies of Medicare, of higher minimum wages, of Social Security, of federal aid to education, and there you will find the enemy of the Negro, the coalition of dixocrats and reactionary Republicans that seek to dominate the Congress. We must develop strength in order that we may be able to back and support the civil rights program of President Kennedy. In the struggle against these forces, all of us should be prepared to take to the streets the spirit and techniques that built the labor movement, founded churches, and now guide the civil rights revolution. must be a massive crusade, must be launched against the unholy, coalition of Dixocrats and uh, the racists that seek to strangle Congress. We here today are on the first wave. When we leave, it will be to carry on the Civil Rights Revolution home with us into every nook and cranny of the land. And we shall return again and again to Washington in every growing numbers until total freedom is ours.
0: But I think you know, we have to be honest that part of the cynical uh, either or that goes on amongst Washington elites is like, you know, b- precisely because from that moment at high, high watermark of the mid 60s and the liberal labor civil rights coalition. Right. That after Vietnam, uh, that thing, that all fell apart. Right. And, and those two groups were, were sort of right. at each other's throats for a while before they re-coalesced. And and I and I wanna tell that part of the story to underline yeah, the 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 cynicism of the Clintonite wing of the party in that they you know, a big part of their like we're gonna put the past of the New Deal style dem and Great Society style Democratic Party behind us, the era of big government is over and all of that, came right up with Hey, we're go- we've got to get real about race, and uh, we've got to get real about the inner cities, and we've got to realize that some of these kids are super predators, and we've got to throw tons of them into prison. And so, um, so there there was always this willingness, and 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 that was about that was about a calculation to get white voters, right? Who, frankly, were had like racist crime fears going on. Um, so I, I say all of that to say that the this th- what's going on in Washington now of thinking that you punch one part of your base in order to you know make another part of your base feel better uh, is something that's been going on now um, and been the sort of dominant strategy uh, uh, for for decades and it's a it yeah it's a problem um, and it's self-limiting I think in the long run. Well, that
1: may be one reason why it's important that the emerging top leadership of so many of the progressive and even and Democratic Party institutions are people of color. Stacey Abrams is not going to let, uh, uh, I don't think, she's going to let there be uh, a watering down dilution and, and abandonment. She can't even as a practical politician, let alone for moral reasons.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the piece of it that is more important to me is less about the top leadership and more about the the middle leadership, (laughs) the the dominant uh, forces, their dominant pressure that comes from the membership and from the society on those leadership positions. Because, I I mean, I'm sorry, but we got to say, like, the actual civil rights leadership themselves was full of uh, people who got into powerful positions nationally and then, yeah, really did not behave honorably or stick with the the struggle at all. So um, it's got to be more than just... Different faces in the board chairs.
1: Yeah, well, and I think these different faces are there because of the the, the grassroots yes. groundswell that we're talking about. Agreed. Um, Agreed. I just say it's a sign, and it's it, it's something to it's a resource to have that kind of um, transformation, and, and it and it enables maybe holding people more accountable than ever at the top to to deliver, given that that this is their their roots, but. I appreciate uh, the fact that you are adding subtlety, complexity, and contradiction to all the simplifications. That concludes uh, our conversation for this episode. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. Next time, we're going to focus on what is socialism? WTF is socialism. And I'd like to go out with a bit of a song that Josh White recorded 80 years ago, but it interweaves the very themes we've been talking about on this episode, race and class. So I think it's a good way to conclude. Thanks for listening. Oh
2: Wonder. When I'll hear good Right now, I'm gonna tell you I've got them bad housing blues. I'm going to the Capitol, going to the White House lawn. Well, I'm going to the Capitol, going to the White House lawn. Better wipe out these slums, been this way since I was born. Bye. <laughs>